empathy is having a moment. I really still am convinced that not only are we personally better off when we practice more empathy in our lives, not only are organizations, you know, more productive and more performing, but the world uh, gets better with more empathy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 2023 edition of I Am Christina D'Arcangelo. This is my first shoot of the new year. I've had to modify my schedule earlier this year because I had something happen that I wasn't expecting. So now we're back on track again. And I have my first guest of the new year, Anita. Thank you so much for joining me today. Why don't you introduce yourself to everyone and we could just get started. Well, thank you, Christina. And hello, everyone listening. Happy New Year. If you're still in January as you check this out. Um, my name is Anita Novak. I teach at McGill. I've been teaching there for more than a decade. I love working with young change makers. So I teach social entrepreneurship and leadership and ethics and management. And I'm the author of a forthcoming book called Purposeful Empathy, Tapping Our Hidden Superpower for Personal, Social, uh, Organizational and Social Change. So I'm very, very excited. I am so excited about this because this is something, empathy is something that I feel is so important for people to have as a human. And, you know, we saw a lot, you know, during COVID, and I'm not going to turn this into a political discussion, but you know what I'm where I'm coming from, right? Mental health is at its highest. There's a lot of stuff going on all over the world, uh, multiple countries, economy problems, fighting, all kinds of stuff. And, you know, imagine if people could have been or, or could be more empathetic and more purposeful about it. I know for myself, how we got connected was because I had written an article about my leadership style. And one of the ways that I, I first off am a head and heart CEO. Um, so, which is strange, you know, especially working in pharma, because you know, they're, you know, <laughs> and so I don't, I don't do that. Um, and I'm a service centered leader. So I work for my people. That's what I do. I work for patients and I work for my people and anybody that needs help pretty much. So that's how we got connected. So I'm super excited to talk to you today because we have a lot of things synchronistically in common. Mm -hmm. So your fourth book, when did you write your first book and what was that about? Well, I, I just to let you know, this is my first book. Um, oh, I thought I, you said fourth. I'm sorry. No, no, first, first, first ever. I've, I I've, apologize. <laughs> I've been involved in a couple of other books that are much more academic, but this is the first one that I've written from start to finish. Yeah. Okay. So how long did it take you? Because I, I, I'm writing a book. <laughs> awesome. As I'm laughing hysterically. Because I could just imagine, uh, you know, what your experience was while you're writing your book. Well, so uh, I came across the topic of empathy in a really unusual manner. I didn't set out to study empathy. I was doing my PhD in the Faculty of Education, and I was really interested in understanding how to teach young people to give their talents, their time, talent, treasure 
to like creating a better world. And so I ended up interviewing dozens and dozens of social entrepreneurs. So these are people that use all the entrepreneurial talent of any typical business person, but instead of trying to turn it over for a profit, they're looking for social impact, whether it's on poverty, whether it's on climate change, doesn't matter. I was agnostic to the topic, um, but I was interviewing them to understand why do they do the work that they do. And through these interviews, it occurred to me that they all had this sense of empathy for others that they felt were disenfranchised or, or, or marginalized in some way and couldn't turn a blind eye. And so that's when I started to like think about empathy as a lever. Like, can we leverage empathy to create the social change we want? And then I went for a deep dive. For 10 years, I've been studying empathy and about five years ago, I started posting on my social media what I call a daily empathy post. So I'd do a Google search and see if there was anywhere in the world somebody writing a piece or a story that had empathy in the title or somewhere along the lines. And I've been doing this for over five years now, thousands of empathy posts. And the last two years, empathy is on fire. Everybody's talking about the importance of empathy, whether it's in the political arena, in um, obviously in healthcare, given what we've just lived through, you know, everything that happens on the social justice side of things, like we need to create more empathy for one another, whether we're talking about climate change, like the people who are going to be impacted, empathy is having a moment. And um, I really still am convinced that not only are we personally uh, better off when we practice more empathy in our lives. Not only are our organizations, you know, more productive and more performing, um, high performance, but the world uh, gets better with more empathy. So that's that's what that's the, my mission. That is awesome. I just love that, and I love also the fact that kids are now being taught empathy. You know, like. I don't know, when we were growing up, we were not taught about empathy in class. There was no focus on empathy. You just had to do your work and you had to be obedient and you had to excel, you know, and learn, right? They were taught empathy. And I have, my son is going to be 10. And, you know, being Baha'i, especially we're both, you know, he's Baha'i, I'm raising him Baha'i and I converted to it. We're very much focused on, in our faith, empathy and service and all these nice things that, we should do is to help people, right? And when you see someone that needs a little, you know, arm around their shoulder because they're sad about something, it's being empathetic, right? And so since my kid was a little boy, I used to get a lot of notes about Christian being, you know, empathetic and kind and all these things. And I was like, oh, this is so awesome because this is how I'm trying to raise him in my household. But then school is paying attention to it. And they're teaching this in classes about showing empathy and, and like doing all these amazing things. And I think it's so essential for kids because I didn't even learn about empathy in college, you know, like, and I even have a degree in organizational management. No empathy was taught. <laughs> None of even that. Even in med school, it's not taught. So, no. well, there's a lot to say about that because um, if you think about it, schools back 300 years ago when they were first invented was to meet the needs of the industrial revolution, right? We needed workers who would have numeracy and literacy to be able to function in their jobs to, in order to help out on the production lines and schools to a large extent have not really shifted gears too, too much since from that model. And I think that finally, finally, you know, the more progressive schools and the more progressive educators understand that we are whole people and there's much more to learn 
um, including emotional literacy, the mm-hmm. capacity to understand how we're feeling and how other people are feeling, uh, because all our lives we're wandering around it, connected to other people, triggered by one another. Why are we so triggered? Because we don't have, you know, the capacity to self-regulate. We, you know, uh, and, and it's such a it's such an important skill regardless of where you are in the world, regardless of what work you're doing, because unless you're a hermit living out by yourself, you're going to come into contact with people. Yes. I mean, look what's, I I don't, I'm sure you're, you pay attention to the news. You just mentioned, you know, you're on every day, but look what happened to, you know, in California, in the Bay area. I lived in the Bay area. I loved living in California. I lived there. Oh, five to 10. I came back because my dad had come out of remission. We thought he was dying of cancer in 2010 and he didn't. He, you know, he kept going until 15. But when I see these things about the Bay Area now, like Half Moon Bay, I, I, I can't even, I can't even, the Bay Area was always one of, in my opinion, I mean, I'm jaded, I live there, but it was one of my favorite places to be because it was so accepting and people were very empathetic. And then to see what happened last, you know, yesterday or whatever it was, I can't remember, but it's just like, I can't even believe it. Two days ago, I think. You, you, what, what, what's going on? Like when you said self-regulate, it hit me because, you know, for children, we're trying to teach them in school to self-regulate and not go from zero to a hundred. Yeah. Like that. They've got to take a step tapping, you know, there's a lot of things you can do to get yourself to come down again. Yeah. Well, there's a hundred things to say about gun violence and mass shootings for sure. And as a Canadian, you know, we're always wondering what America is doing that they're not right. kind of getting on with more legislation that would just be smart. Um, it's a public health issue at this point, but I think a lot has to be said about the chronic stress that we are under in yeah. our society and added to all of the complexity of the last couple of years and what that's meant to our well-being and our actual physiology. I'm not making excuses by any means, but I'm trying to explain that our brains uh, neurologically cannot be in a state of empathy and a state of stress or anxiety simultaneously. It's no. not possible. So if you think about it, you know, whether or not it's inflation, whether or not it's being told that that scapegoat is your the reason for your problems at work or that you can't find a job or whatever is the issue, COVID, people um, stressed out about traffic. Like if you're constantly, constantly moving through life, feeling anxious and stressed, you don't have the same capacity for empathy. And so I think I think um, it's really, really, really important that we start to develop practices where we soothe our nervous system um, and and sort of open up pathways for us to actually have access to empathy. I I agree with you 150 percent. You see me nodding because I mean, this is as you know, I kind of already said this is how I practice my life. Right. Is to always have empathy for others and recognizing where they're at in that moment. Um, but I worked a lot because I used to be fight or flight all the time, fight or flight, fight or flight, you know, and um, it's a lot that's, you know, happened through my childhood that has caused that. And then, you know, my marriage and things. So, you know, domestically, that's why I was always on the fight or flight mode. And when I started doing NLP and working on my subconscious 
and talking to myself nicer, you know, out loud so that my brain could hear what I'm saying. I noticed a big change in my behavior. So to your point, it's establishing those tools so that you can be present in that moment and successful and not be stressed out, right? Because you're right. There's so many things that stress us out. It could be something as stupid as, you know, your washer breaks, you know, and right now you can't get parts and things, right? So a normal back in the day when a washer broke, ah, it's no big deal. It'll be fixed in two days. Well, I'm saying this because my washer's been broke for like two months now, right? And so yeah, I came back from uh, vacation for Thanksgiving and my washer was broke. And so I was like, well, whatever. I outsource for a living. I'm just going to find a wash and fold. And I took myself, see, out of that stressful environment. I could have stayed there and been like, oh, I really like a No, no. Time out. Yeah. Yeah. Put myself in a time out. Let's step back. What's the issue? Resolution, application, and conclusion. Iraq. If we could do that, you know what I'm saying? And I love the fact that you went into problem solving mode and action right away. But I also think about, you know, at the end of the day, I don't know if you suffer from this, but I certainly do. And I was talking to a mindfulness, um, uh, like a psychologist who studies from a research perspective, the positive implications of mindfulness practices. He was saying like, if let's say at night you go through your day and this happens to me all the time where I've worked a really solid day, like a 10 hour day, it's, I've been hard at work all day long. But I spend more time thinking about what I didn't get done than mm -hmm. what I did. Mm -hmm. And that I took a call in the meantime from a friend that needed some advice. And there were a couple of other things that, you know, made, were little kind of uh, footnotes to the day. But I don't actually honor those. And he said this, a simple practice, like actually putting your hands on your chest mm -hmm. and feeling the warmth and saying, I am a good person and I worked hard today and like soothing yourself with those messages because we're constantly believing the thoughts that we have. Mm -hmm. We never challenge the thoughts and we're mostly in negative self-talk. So it's really important to be kind to ourselves too. I agree with you wholeheartedly. And this year, when I came into the new year, I did something very different. Normally I come into the new year and I'm like a comet, you know, I'm flying in, you know, with full force. This year I was like, no, you know what? I'm not doing this. I'm going to work on the things that I want to work on in the beginning of the new year. I'm going to work on things that I need to get done because of project-based things. It's clinical trial or something. Obviously that's the number one priority, patient safety. That's important. But, you know, I'm not getting rid of that kind of stuff. But I'm, what I'm saying is I have not been as overwhelmed this year because I consciously made a change in how I was coming out the gates this year. Mm -hmm. And this was big for me. So at the end of the day, I don't do that anymore. I used to do that where I'd be like, oh, I forgot to call so-and-so back about blah, blah. Well, I just send myself a note so I can do it tomorrow in case I forget because we're human at the end of the day and we can't get, I mean, we can only get what we can get done. And as long as we were impactful, just like you said, then we were, we were amazing that day, you know, and just give yourself a break and pat yourself on the back, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And we have to also remind ourselves that the society we live in does is not 
um, designed for optimal living and optimal well-being and health, like mental health or otherwise. We're so busy. We're being human doings as opposed to human beings. And I think we have to start privileging and valuing what it means to slow down and not have to be so task oriented that we can get value from the quality of our relationships as opposed to the quantity of work that we do. I agree. I mean, the whole mental health thing, you know, for me, that's why I did this this year, because I was like, listen, I am not going to, you know, I work a lot. I have multiple companies. I shoot these podcasts in between work, you know, like, and um, I I need to give myself a break because I overwhelm myself with everything very easily. And I'm a single mom. So it's like and the kid's young still. So it's a lot, you know, so for me, I made that choice. And I noticed that my team was very surprised this year, you know, because that's not what I normally do. I come out hard, let's go, bop, bop. And I think that they appreciated also, we were coming in easy this year instead of hardcore. Um, and I think that I helped them with their, you know, stress levels too. So they weren't so like, oh my gosh, because I want my people to tell me if they're stressed out. I don't want them walking around stressed out and afraid because there's no reason to be afraid. We can work on it, figure out how to fix it so we can move something or whatever it is that's bothering you, um, which is different. You know, I'm not production focused. I'm, I'm, I'm focused on my people being well in their positions and feeling supported. And the work they get done is something important and they're doing a great job. That's what I focus on because that's really important for their mental health. Well, it's so interesting because um, a lot of times I get asked if I do corporate talks, um, you know, people say all this empathy stuff, it's really lovely, but we're a high performance culture. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like that, that empathy in the workplace might have a place, you know, once in a while, but it doesn't seem like it's productive you know, the, the value that it brings is not going to sort of like achieve success in the workplace. And I say, no, I want to debunk that completely. That's entirely false. Because if you think about it, like your organization, right, you just talked about you came in and it wasn't like a fast start. It was like, like, you know, let's gradually start the year off on a good note. There's in this expression that I love, which is called, you know, if you go away on a conference away from your day to day work, all of a sudden you have a bright idea once in a while. Musicians refer to it it's as the silence between the notes that makes the music, mm-hmm. right? Once we stop going so fast all the time and we actually enable and facilitate even the opportunity for us to have conversations as human beings before we are subordinates or workers or colleagues, all of a sudden we get to know each other's lives, what happened over the holidays. And all of a sudden our Uh, social capital goes up because I care more about you as a person than just like what work you have to do for me to be able to do my work. Right. So then when we actually kind of shift gears into the work that does need to get done, that the social capital that exists between us greases the wheel of the work because we read each other's emails without judgment of like, what does she mean by that? What's this Mm -hmm. all caps thing? Or so there's so much, you know, miscommunication that happens when you don't have a strong connection with people. So the the stronger the relationships are at work, the more you can be yourself and authentic and free without fearing retribution or judgment, the more we can sort of be creative, be innovative, and and, and work goes 
better, not to mention the issue of absenteeism or presenteeism, which is a mm-hmm. thing, or people just quiet quitting or the giant resignation. You know, we have to look at all those metrics that when people feel valued and safe at work, they're going to stay there mm-hmm. and they're mm-hmm. going to perform. I, I write about this a lot, these types of topics, you know, because I, I, I want to try to use my voice to make it better for people, you know, and, and a lot of times at the C-suite level, we think we know everything all the time and we don't, we don't know everything. And to your point, understanding what's going home on, at, on at home, because it impacts their work, right? If they had something happen where they have a relative that's ill or whatever, they're not going to be fully present that day. So if you can spend a little bit of time connecting with them on that, if they choose to talk about it, of course, then you're showing and acknowledging that 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 they're that they're being heard, they are safe to talk about it. You're showing the empathy that you feel for them on that given situation. And they go back to work again thinking, wow, that was so nice. I can take a deep breath and now I can begin. You know, like it, it just, it, it, it kills me that more, more companies don't do this, you know, and I've worked for some big, 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 big pharma companies that, you know, we're supposed to be helping patients and shit, it's all about the bottom line. You know, it's not about, and it's not about the workers. We're all replaceable. Yeah. And so it's like, wow, this is, this is how we're going to do this. So that's why I made a direct change, you know, and I see where you are and what you're trying to do. The fact that you work at McGill, which, geez, I mean, I've worked with McGill for clinical studies, you know, for the questionnaires we license. (laughs) So I've known about you guys for years and years and years. I mean, it's prestigious. And I think it's amazing that you're and you're in Canada. You guys are so much nicer there than we. (laughs) I don't mean to put a stand over here, but damn, (laughs) I mean. Sometimes I feel like I'm in an alien ship. I don't know what's going on. I'm like, what the hell is happening in this country? Well, I mean, if you travel around America, you meet incredible people. But the yep. news the news of America doesn't highlight all of your, your finer moments. No, it surely does it. It surely does it. So we actually have to end now. It's time for us to say goodbye, so to speak. But I really appreciated having you on. And I'd like to invite you back on because there's a topic that I'd like to cover with you in the future. And your book will be out by then. So we could talk about your book too. Uh, But if that's okay with you, I'd like to have you back on again. Love it, Christina. Love it. Okay. Awesome. Well, thank you. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. I know you have another meeting to go to as well. So (laughs) I want to be mindful of your time. But thank you so much for joining us today and talking about this topic because it is so very important in my opinion. Thank you for having me, Christina. I wish you a great day and all your listeners as well. Oh, thank you so much. And so as we always do at the end of every episode, I like to remind people of the following. Remember, we are the same. I am Christina D'Archangelo. Thank you for joining us today. Mm-hmm.